Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. This is the Words Matter Library. Our guest today is award-winning author, lawyer, and journalist, Michael Bovellian. His latest book, Battle for the Marble Palace, Abe Fortas, Earl Warren, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and the Forging of the Modern Supreme Court is our subject today. Michael is also a contributor to Forbes, where he also writes on the Supreme Court, white-collar crime, and politics. Michael Bovellian, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I did my graduate work in 20th century American jurisprudence at the University of Virginia, so this is a topic that I'm especially interested in. But this is a book that will or should be of interest to anyone who cares about the direction of our country. The professor that I was a teaching assistant for, David O'Brien, would begin every semester with one question on the board. He would write, what is law? And at UVA, you can imagine every undergraduate either saw themselves as a future Supreme Court justice, attorney general, or at least a Williams and Conley partner. Right. And so we'd let four or five of them give their textbook fairly well rehearsed, or at least from their fathers or mothers at the dinner table answer. And then Professor O'Brien would turn to me and I'd say, for the purposes of this class, law is what five people wearing black robes sitting in a marble building on Capitol Hill say it is. And, and your book obviously is not about the evolution of legal thought or case law, but it's about something that's really, really important, which is Supreme Court nominations. And it answers one of the seminal questions for us here at Words Matter, which is, how did we get here? So having just lived through the Brett Kavanaugh nomination, I think everyone understands the importance and the current state of Supreme Court nominations. Explain why you decided to write this book and why you decided to focus on this particular nomination and how it all went down. Right. That, that's a great question. I was looking through uh, the Senate's website years ago, 2011, and they had a list of all the nominees dating back to George Washington. And what I noticed that was so astonishing for me, and, I, and, I, and I'm a lawyer, and so I knew something about the Supreme Court at least, was that up through the late 1960s, nominees were confirmed with ease, often within days or weeks. One of them was confirmed in a day after he was nominated. The hearings would be very short, sometimes a matter of just minutes or hours. Uh, there were no litmus tests, no background checks. And more often than not, the Senate confirmed nominees through a voice vote where they just yelled out yay or nay in unison. And I said, wait a minute, how did it come to this combative process that we live to in this day? And if you look at the list, you'll see a dramatic change that takes place in 1968. You have the first time that a nominee is filibustered. And then right afterwards, you also have a series of events that kind of entrench the changes, the revolutionary changes that took place that year. You have a series of rejections under two different presidents. You have a justice resigned under scandal for the first time. And you have a justice nearly impeached for the first time since 1804. So you have a process that was very easy, smooth, almost cavalier where the Senate largely rubber-stamped nominees, and then all of a sudden, you know, all hell breaks loose, if you will, and you have this very combative sequence of events, and that's really cast a shadow on how we go about in selecting nominees and vetting nominees and the political calculations we make in, in confirming justices, which wasn't the case up until the late 60s. As I mentioned, uh, Professor O'Brien, whose seminal book is Storm Center, the Supreme Court in American Politics, which is a book you cite in, in, in yes. your work. And while O'Brien argues that the Supreme Court has always been at the center, their decisions have always been at the center of this political fight in America, the nominations escaped it 
Why do you think that is? Right. That That's a great question. For some reason, whether it was FDR's court packing attempt in the 30s or earlier, as around you said. Around Dred Scott, around the Civil War. Right. I mean, it was a little bit, but it wasn't. Right. It wasn't like, like, as you mentioned, again, we're going to get into some of the numbers because I think they're really important to make the point. But why do you think it was? Is Was it that the Senate just looked at it and said, look, presidents win elections and they get to pick their nominees? I think there was a lot more deference to the president's power to appoint justices. But I also think a lot of those events were one-time events for that political era. Right. So Dred Scott comes, then you have the Civil War, you have the Civil War amendments, and it kind of fades from memory. FDR tries to pack the court in the in the 30s, and then the court kind of switches and starts approving the New Deal measures, and that moment also fades. So I think that's why people didn't focus so much on who gets to be on the court, because these the tumult surrounding the court kind of came and went. Now, you mentioned these voice votes, and again, I... I read your book and then I went through and I wanted to really go through the statistics. And what's amazing is of those first 97 justices between Dawn of the Republic in 1968, 67, two-thirds, almost 70%, over two-thirds were approved by this voice vote. And I think it's also telling that the last voice vote we had was 1965 Abe Fortas. That's right. Again, you point this out. So again, I'm going to stick on this for a second just because is this more of a change in the Senate rather than the court, or is it both? It's both. See, what happened when Earl Warren became Chief Justice in the fall of 1953, and the court, as you had said, had been at the center of a political controversy before, but what changed under his tenure as Chief Justice was now people started to see the true power of the court. The court in its past had been kind of a blockade against the legislative branch or against the president, but now it was seen as something that could sort of circumvent the political process to push some kind of public policy. So you have obviously Brown v. Board, which is you know the groundbreaking ruling ending segregation, but the court's rulings in ending the excesses of McCarthyism and banning prayer in school and uh, ending the malapportioned legislative districts and all its uh, law and order criminal procedure rulings like Miranda, which is the most famous or infamous one, depending on how you look at it. People started to see, wow, look how much you could get through the political process without having to go through the usual legislation or without having to win an election. And once people saw that on the left and the right, they said, well, if we can control the court, then we could do this for ourselves, right? So if you're, if you're a liberal or a Democrat at the time, you're thinking we could continue to perpetuate that. What we couldn't do through Congress or the state governments, we can do through the court. And on the right, they said, wait, wait a minute, look how much they're getting passed the political process, simply by having five or six justices uh, support these kinds of rulings, why don't we do that as well? And and you get that thinking, you go straight from that to Citizens United, right? through the Second Amendment cases that we've seen in recent years, where instead of trying to get a majority or supermajority in Congress and within the electorate in general, people now think, well, why don't I just get five justices to agree to my position? And that understanding really started to take place in the 50s and 60s. And because of that, people started to say, well, wait a minute. If there's so much at stake, the court is no longer just, like I said, sort of a backstop that might block Congress or block the president. It's now something that can actually enact its own agenda. Well, then, then it's going to be an all-out war over who gets to sit on the court. 
So that was that was the calculation that was made in the in the change you have, and I think that's why the confirmation process blew up the way it did. You pointed out in the book, and it's it's an interesting thing. You know, we talked about hearings. Now we have these now Kavanaugh, Bork, all these all the hearings, Clarence Thomas obviously being one of the most famous. But that process, even in itself, didn't start until a hundred years ago, nineteen twenty five. Right. And the first two were kind of more giving them a chance to respond to criticism. The first real Supreme Court Senate Judiciary Committee nominating hearing was 1955, John Marshall Harlan II, first time that a a jurist was or a nominee was put in front of that panel to answer questions. And I think, again, to the point you're making, it's not an accident that that was the first nomination after Brown versus Board of Education. And the nomination we're going to talk about in a little bit was the first nomination for Chief Justice since that same one. So I think that that's absolutely right. You talked about Earl Warren and one of the interesting things, and I just want to sort of draw out some of these characters to lay the groundwork because sure. I don't think people are familiar. You know, Earl Warren was had previously been the governor of California. He'd been the Republican vice presidential nominee with Thomas Dewey in right. 1948. And I think he was the last chief justice who did not have any prior judicial experience and probably will be the last one ever. Yes, I would agree with that. And one of those rulings was uh, Gideon versus R- Wainwright, which is something you talk about. Talk a little bit about the case and Abe Fortas's role before he was on the court in that case. Right. The, the case involved giving indigent defendants in a, criminal, in a criminal case the right to a lawyer that would be funded by the government. And that's something that the states were not obligated to do. And there was no one representing the defendant in the case. So the court appointed Abe Fortas to represent this position. And he made, and this was in 1963, he made an astounding oral argument. A lot of the justices said it was the best oral argument that they had heard. And ultimately, when they ruled in Gideon v. Wainwright, they created that right to a lawyer for in a, in a criminal defense setting, not at the, just the federal level, but at, at the state level as well. And it was a groundbreaking case, one of the groundbreaking criminal procedure rulings of the Warren Court. And it really shined a, a national limelight on Fortas. He had, he had already been known as this really brilliant lawyer. His, his colleague had called him a brain surgeon. And in legal circles, a, a, a really good attorney is known as a lawyer's lawyer. And he was known as a lawyer's lawyer's lawyer. So he, he was just this you know, really smart, brilliant guy. But that case really started to give him a, a national profile. And ultimately, a couple of years later, he ends up uh, on the Supreme Court as an associate justice. It's one of the most remarkable stories of somebody becoming an associate justice on the Supreme Court. Explain the circumstances of how Abe Fortas got there. Certainly presidents had looked to the ideology of potential justices before Johnson, but he's the first president to really look at it the way we do now in this very calculating way. And and you could see this if you look at his immediate predecessors. Uh, Harry Truman selects four justices. And they're all kind of centrists. And you'd wonder, well, why would a Democrat not pick liberals to the court? Eisenhower picked five justices, and two of them end up being the liberal titans of the Supreme Court, Earl Warren and William Brennan. I think that Eisenhower was asked in his last year in office what his biggest mistake was, and he said he made two of them. And they're sitting on the Supreme Court, Warren and Brennan. That's right. He considered the biggest mistake of his presidency. And and JFK picks Byron White, again, a centrist justice. So you wonder, from a modern-day perspective— these appointments look foolish or at least befuddling for us, right? Because now we're, we're like, oh, if we have a Republican, he, of course he's going to pick someone to the far right. And if we have a Democrat, he's going to pick someone to the far left and so on. They didn't think that way. 
But Johnson was sort of the first president to start to think that way. In many ways, he he and Nixon set up the template for later presidents. So it's 1965. He's he's enacted the 64 Civil Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act is on its way. The Great Society is on he's its way. He's won re-election by he's, a huge won, margin. Right. And, and he's at the height of his popularity and of his power. And he's got control over Congress. You know, they're doing his bidding. And he was known as the master of the Senate. And, and obviously, he controls the White House. He was worried about what the court might do. He knew the Great Society would be tested in the courts, just as the New Deal was. You remember what happened with FDR in the early years of the New Deal? You mentioned those civil rights things, but he also had Medicare, Medicaid. He had yes. a whole social agenda unrivaled since the 1930s. That's right. And so he wanted a court that would shield his legislative achievements. He also wanted to perpetuate the, the liberal legacy that Earl Warren had started. And finally, he kind of wanted a, a spy on the court. You know, LBJ is a very Machiavellian guy. And, and so the problem was there were no vacancies. So he created one. And you think, well, how could that be? The president has no direct influence over justice. But LBJ being LBJ and what was called the Johnson treatment, his powers of personal persuasion really kicked in. And he convinced Arthur Goldberg, who had been an associate justice from 1962, so he had only been on the court for three years, he convinced him to resign so that he could become the ambassador to the U.N. Now, again, you think again, well, why would anyone do that? It's certainly an important job to be the ambassador, uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., but it's not lifetime tenure like the Supreme Court job. Sometimes it's only a few months. Uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a man who I worked with, wrote a book called A Dangerous Place about his time at the U.N. So, no, it's it's the furthest thing, I think, from a lifetime appointment. That's right. And and if you're a lawyer, I mean, the Supreme Court is your final destination, right? It's the the idealized place for, for your career. But Johnson convinced Goldberg, he said, you're going to be my second secretary of state. You're going to lead the negotiations in Vietnam. And then he even hinted that when he runs for re-election in 68, which he ended up not doing, but that Goldberg would be his uh, vice president. So none of these things came, came to fruition. Goldberg was very disappointed at the UN. But within just a few days of Johnson starting this campaign, if you will, Goldberg resigned. And Johnson had the perfect man he wanted to fill the spot. It was Abe Fortas. He had been his longtime lawyer, friend, as well as political advisor. And as I said, he was a renowned lawyer at the time. So he knew he, he'd have a first-rate jurist. And he knew that Fortas was a liberal who would protect his, uh, his legislative legacy as well. So, so that's how he kind of maneuvered Fortas onto the court. And on another interview I listened to you, the hosts sort of disparaged Goldberg and called him a sucker or a fool. Or, and there's a certain uh, you know, truth to that. But also, I think to your point, and, and I do a little defense of Arthur Goldberg, because again, that Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan started his career working in that labor department mm-hmm. for Secretary Goldberg. But Johnson politicizing the court, as you mentioned, was so unthinkable that I think to a certain extent that Goldberg just was blindsided by the whole idea that he would be wanting to do this right. and really believed, as, as again, you said, that Johnson treatment. What had Fortas done for LBJ legally? I think he represented him in an important chapter in LBJ's life, which you talk about. Talk about it here. Yes. In the 48 election, LBJ was in the House, and now he was running for the uh, Senate in Texas. And it was sort of a part of his career where if he didn't make it then, you know, you only have windows of opportunity. If there's a strong incumbent, you really can't run Especially against Especially in them. the Senate in the South at that time. Right. If you right. missed it. Yeah. That's right. People were entrenched for decades, a lot of these Southern senators. So it was his window of opportunity to finally jump from the House to the Senate and really become a national player in politics. And 
pretty much if you got the Democratic nomination, you were going to win the general election. So it came down to the primary. And he had, a, I think, an 87-vote lead. And there was a lot of controversy over— And those votes were found in a, a couple of—Robert Carroll goes through this in his books. A couple yes. suspicious circumstances earning Johnson the nickname Landslide Linden, ironically. But so Fortas was his lawyer in that really, yes. really important case. Yes, and it went to the—it got um, adjudicated in the courts, and Fortas represented him and ultimately prevailed— and Johnson became, he won the primary and then he, he easily won uh, the election. And then within just a couple of years, he becomes majority leader. And by the mid-50s, he is now one of the central players in Washington. And as Robert Caro has pointed out, the most accomplished and powerful majority leader in the 20th century, if not ever. So that 48 election really propels him to the national limelight. And without that, it's unlikely that he would ever become a vice president and then, and then president. So Fortas was there in, in the biggest political battle of his life. And as I said, he represented Johnson on his financial holdings. He was his personal lawyer. He was his confidant. He came up with the idea for the Warren Commission to investigate the JFK assassination. He helped write a lot of Johnson's speeches. So they were really close personally and, and politically and, as I said, even legally by, by representing him. So it was a very close relationship, and and that's also in part why he selected Fortas to replace Earl Warren in 1968 when Warren was ready to retire to then become a chief justice of the Supreme Court. So let's get to that. Earl Warren, who had served from 1953, as you said, presided over the Warren court next to John Marshall, the sig- most significant tenure of any chief justice. He let it be known. He announced his retirement in June of 1968. Johnson has already said he's not running for president. And so Johnson goes to nominate, essentially, like you said, his personal lawyer to the exalted position of chief justice. What happened? Right. Everyone assumed that Fortas would be a, a shoe in partly for the reasons you had stated earlier, that there had only been one rejection since 1894. Justices were confirmed rather easily. And in fact, in 1965, when Fortas was confirmed as an associate justice, it was through a voice vote. And it, was, it only took two weeks, and he testified for about three hours. So there were no background checks. The, the Senate Judiciary Committee didn't investigate him. The FBI didn't investigate him. None of the things that we do today took place then. And then Johnson, even though he wasn't going to run for re-election, he was still known as the master of the Senate. So everyone just assumed that he was going to be confirmed. And someone had told me that he was so confident that he had his clerks start to take over some of the administrative tasks that a chief justice would normally do on the court. So what they did not suspect was the intensity of the opposition. And that intensity arose from Southern Democrats, who were still very upset, fuming over uh, Brown v. Board, as well as conservatives in the Senate. And really, they didn't have a problem so much with Fortas. Yes, he was a liberal jurist, but there were other liberals on the court. He was the proxy. He was the heir apparent to Warren. And because Warren had evaded all of their attacks on the court for the preceding, you know, 15 years or so, they now saw, okay, we can't reach Warren. He's beyond our grasp. We tried time and again to restrict the court's jurisdiction or pass constitutional amendments to overrule the court's rulings. Countless speech after speech condemning the court. All of those things were unable to hinder the Warren court's progress. So finally, in 1968, Strom Thurmond, who was one of Fortas's main opponents in the Senate, they come to the realization that the only way to influence the court is to control its members. And that's where you get this unprecedented break with protocol, 
break with traditions and the norms and the customs that had governed the judicial selection process. And all of it is unleashed on Fortas, who in a way is the collateral damage to Earl Warren's legacy. And you mentioned Strom Thurmond, who is who served so long, and I used to explain to people, he was elected to the South Carolina State Legislature in the Franklin Roosevelt sweep of 1932. Right. He ran for president as a Dixiecrat, and he won a couple of states in 1948. Right. And by 1968, he's no longer a Democrat. As you said, he is this Southern senator from South Carolina, the embodiment in the Senate, at least, at least one of them, of the segregationist South. And what traditions and what conventions of protocol does Strom Thurmond break? There are more, there's more than one. So I'll let you go through them because I think they're really interesting. And again, we see Strom Thurmond make another appearance almost 20 years later in the Robert Bork hearings. We see him more than 20 years later in the Clarence Thomas hearings. Talk to us about Strom Thurmond and what he did. Right, right. And as you said, so by 1968, he becomes a Republican and he becomes the Republican kingmaker in the South. So some of these things are going to sound familiar. And he didn't just do it alone. There was a Michigan Senator, Robert Griffin, who's now not as well known, and uh, Howard Baker and the Southern Democrats. So he didn't do and, it alone. And James but, Eastland, I think, who's been in the news recently as well. Yes, yes. He was the uh, chairman of the Judiciary Committee. But Strom Thurmond was the point person on these attacks. And first thing they said was that LBJ was a lame duck. Sounds familiar, right? What Mitch McConnell said in 2016 with Barack Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland. Now, let's focus on that for a second because, again, in preparation for this, I went back and I, by my count, 18 justices had been nominated or confirmed during an election year. And we say LBJ was a lame duck. There had not been another election. He was still the president. Right. He was the president until January 20th at that that point. But there were even three Supreme Court justices, including John Marshall, who was in American history, the most important chief justice, again, next to Earl Warren, it's sort of back and forth. We right. can have that argument of who's the best. But he was appointed when, by John Adams, when John Adams had lost the election already to Thomas Jefferson. That's so, right. As you in, said, in the last days of office. In the last days of office. So this thing was not only a ridiculous argument. How did the opposition not push back on that? You know, they tried. The lame duck argument was kind of used to delay, delay a quick confirmation. And and they knew, I mean, you, you see in internal memos, they knew that this was a specious argument, but they were grasping for anything to slow slow down a quick confirmation for Fortis. So, and, and it's not an argument I'd ever seen before. You've done all that research and you had never seen it before. That's right. And again, if, if that was the case, you have, again, 18 justices who fall into that category or in some version of that. That's right. And, and, and just to give you yeah. a, how, how revolutionary this was, in October of 56, Eisenhower is running for re-election. We don't know if he's going to win yet, right? The election's about a month away. He appoints William Brennan as a recess appointment. I mean, think about that. And no one, no one complained. They said, okay, that's fine. Recess appointment, the Senate didn't approve him until months later after the election. So imagine if Eisenhower had lost. Not only is he the lamest of ducks then, right? Because now Brennan is picked by an, a losing president. So, but no one thought that that was a problem. And this is playing out in the summer of 1968. We mentioned Warren said it was June 28th. I said, as, as most Supreme Court justices who, who retire, they wait until the end of the term. Right. They announce their retirement. Then you go into the summer of 1968. You've already had the assassination of Martin Luther King. You've already had just a month before the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Right. 
and we go into that Democratic convention in Chicago that was famously uproarious and the party was divided. Do you think they were delaying because they really thought they could they were going to win in 68? Is that why they did it? Or did they just want to delay for the sake of delay? I think they really thought they had a good chance of winning the presidency. And Nixon fueled them. He didn't overtly say, hey, sabotage Fortas and I'm going to pick a conservative to replace Earl Warren. But he constantly attacked the court throughout his campaign. And he implied that, hey, should should Fortas get rejected, I'm going to pick the kind of justice that conservatives want. And Pat Buchanan wrote in his memoirs, I believe it was in his memoirs or in a memo, he said, Nixon wanted Fortas's nomination uh, killed, but he didn't want his fingerprints on the murder weapon. So it wasn't a, an overt campaign, but it certainly was understood that Fortas gets rejected. And Buchanan was an aide to Nixon at this time, including yes. going on to be a speechwriter and a commentator and a presidential candidate yes, himself. That's right. So that certainly was the understanding that reject Fortas, Nixon's going to pick the kind of person that conservatives will be happy with, that the Warren court's enemies will be happy with. So they were certainly incentivized by that. So what other parliamentary procedure did Strom Thurmond employ that had never been done before? Right. The, the biggest one was the filibuster. No Supreme Court nominee had ever been filibustered before. It was just unheard of. As, as we said earlier, they were mostly voted on by this voice vote, yeas and nays. So this was something that had never been done. And in the beginning, Fortas had a lot more support. You see in the, especially in the White House files, they have these vote counts where the White House staff kind of predicts, prognosticates how the Senate will vote on the probably nomination. The, yeah, probably the only White House where those vote counts were actually accurate. Yes, <laughs> yes. And, and you know, LBJ was this masterful vote counter, so he would insist that his aides were, were really good at this process. So in late June, when LBJ announces Fortas' nomination, they have more than 70 senators supporting and by the way, nomination. It, it, back then, it did, it did take more than a simple majority. You actually did, in that filibuster... You had to have that two-thirds. Yes, yes. It was more than uh, 60, which is now you have to have about 67. So they had 70. And then you could see the filibuster also, again, delayed a quick confirmation. And throughout July, August, September, you see those vote counts dwindling. So it goes down to the 60s and 50s and kind of tapers around in in the high 40s. So no one had done a filibuster before. The stakes now were so high. And just earlier that year, Thurman had written this small book called The Faith We Have Not Kept, where it's, it's a Jeremiah. Like he, he complains about everything that he thinks went wrong in America, and he blames the court as the central institution that ruined America for the, what he called the moral decay of America, and he called the court the chief fountain of lawlessness. And in that book, he also points out in several memos and, and things that he wrote to constituents, the only way to control the court is to con- over the confirmation process. So he'll go to any means possible, and not just him, like I said, but others as well, to control the confirmation process. And if it requires doing a filibuster and shattering all you know, precedent and protocol and tradition governing the confirmation process, then so be it. Even with all the flack they got, they were willing to go through with it, especially as they saw their side gaining more and more votes throughout the summer, then they had all the more reason to continue with that, uh, with that process. You mentioned some of the characters, Strom Thurmond, Pat Buchanan, Nixon. Fortas had been appointed to the seat that was held by Arthur Goldberg, who had been appointed to replace Felix Frankfurter, who'd been appointed to replace Louis Brandeis. How much of this, if any, had to do with Fortas would have been the first Jewish 
chief justice of the Supreme Court? Right. That, that's a great question. And it was tough to find an exact answer. Certainly, there was quite a bit of anti-Semitism directed at him within the American population. And um, I had a chance last fall to go to the National Archives. It takes 50 years to open up Senate Judiciary Committee files. And I would say eight-tenths, if not nine-tenths, of the letters sent to the Judiciary Committee were in opposition to Fortas. And a lot of it had either overt or implied anti-Semitic undertones. They accused him of being part of an international communist conspiracy and used a lot of terrible words to describe his, his Jewish faith. So that was certainly there within the populace. Within the Senate, James Eastland and others were known to not necessarily be uh, overtly friendly to the Jews uh, in the American government, but you didn't necessarily see it overtly, and certainly they were wise enough to not say something like that overtly. And you mentioned communism. Before they came up with the dog whistles on race, I think that one of the dog whistles they'd come up with was communism. Talk a little bit about just this opposition to that Warren court around the McCarthy era, because I think it's I think it's important. If you look at anything from the 50s and 60s, the communism pops up everywhere, even in issues that you wouldn't think it should matter. It's like this ubiquitous, this enemy uh, within, an existential enemy. So in the 50s, under McCarthy, you had all these government uh, actions, loyalty oaths, background checks, congressional committees were running amok, ruining a lot of people's lives and reputations. And the Supreme Court had largely given its approval to those tactics in the early 50s. But when Warren stepped in again by 1956, 57, in a series of rulings, they don't do it in one sweeping case. It's not like Brown v. Board, but it's a lot of smaller rulings that basically put an end to the excesses of McCarthyism. So they say just because someone used to belong to the Communist Party you know, 20, 30 years ago doesn't mean that they should be blacklisted or they circumscribed the power of congressional committees. They were no longer allowed to simply uh, ruin someone's reputation. They changed the way courts would adjudicate cases against someone alleged of communist behavior. So they issued these rules in the 56, 57, and it led to a huge backlash. And McCarthy was was still alive. There's a hearing where James Eastland is the uh, subcommittee chair, and McCarthy is the witness, and he says, you know, one ruling after another, the Warren Court is supporting communists, and, and they're legislating from the bench. That was a big thing that they kept repeating, not just in the South, but throughout the country. They're legislating from the bench. And there was such a big outcry. Editorials are writing, you know, the Kremlin has its best friend in the Supreme Court. And, of course, Strom Thurmond. And now conservatives from the Midwest and the West Coast now joined the South in condemning the Warren Court. And ultimately, it came to a head in 1958. Congress has the power to decide the court's jurisdiction. There are very few cases where the court from the Constitution has jurisdiction, and there were a bunch of bills that were going to circumscribe to really undercut the court's jurisdiction. And the House passed these measures in overwhelming numbers, and it came down to the Senate, and LBJ was then the majority leader, and he pulled off his machinations and you know his masterful strategy. And the one bill that was going to be passed, there was enough support for it, he managed to uh, derail it by one vote. So, so that came to a head in 1958. And if you look at 10 years later, when Fortas is nominated, it's all the same parties are having a rematch. They're like, LBJ is there, Earl Warren's there, and all the Warren Court's enemies in the Senate now find an opening to finally win out one of these battles that they kept losing again and again 
whether it was in the Senate or, as I said, in trying to pass constitutional amendments. So communism was a big part of that, as well as the criminal procedure rulings, the apportionment rulings, the ban in school prayer, and so on. So now this is their chance in 1968 to finally get their revenge against the Warren Court. So you have the lame duck argument, you have the use of the filibuster, and one of the most fascinating parts about reading your book was the film festival. Yes, that was fascinating, sad, amusing all at the same time. So obscenity, pornography was a big culture war issue of the day. And it was a very difficult First Amendment issue for the court. You have this sexual awakening in the 60s, right? But at the same time, about three quarters of Americans didn't want pornography in their communities. So you have a real clash of cultures. And the court was stuck in the middle because it was trying to balance the First Amendment rights of adult materials like uh, Hugh Hefner, but at the same time, allow communities to protect themselves from having this kind of stuff in their neighborhoods. So it was a very nuanced, difficult position, but Strom Thurmond didn't care for nuance. No, he wasn't much for nuance. No, he, he wasn't. And so what he did was he had a Charles Keating and an associate come and testify against the court. If Remember, Charles Keating was involved in the savings and loan scandal in the 1980s. 20 years later, right. Yes. But in the 60s, he was the head of the leading anti-obscenity group in the United States, and those witnesses testified that the court was sort of the, the champion, the savior of pornographers throughout the country and that these purveyors of smut looked to the court for support. And this really shocked a lot of people and it started to hurt Fortas's reputation in the public, which had originally supported his uh, confirmation. And then Thurman doesn't stop there. The White House, in response, sends Warren Christopher, who was uh, Bill Clinton's secretary of state, but at the time he was the deputy attorney general. So he's trying to explain the nuances of the First Amendment to the Senate Judiciary Committee. And while he's doing this, Thurman is flipping through nude magazines during his testimony. So you can imagine this earnest you know, lawyer making this case about the First Amendment, and, and Thurman's kind of mocking it by go, flipping through these nude magazines. And then finally, Thurman doesn't stop there. He says, why don't we watch some of these uh, adult movies that the court has shielded from censors and at first, the Judiciary Committee says, no way, you're out of your mind, we're not going to do that. But he goes ahead anyway, he gets a, he rents a coin-operated projector, and there was no proper theater room, so they kind of broadcast the film on a wood-paneled wall, and it erupts into what was called the Fortis Film Festival. They watch a couple of dozen movies over... over and the chairman let this happen, huh? Yes, the chairman let it happen. He started watching some of these movies. He started, he went and sent some of the staff to go find the more racy movies, if you will. And these were obscure films that no one had ever heard of. And by September of 1968, Fortas is labeled Mr. Obscenity. And the public, it's now not just in the Senate, the public really turns against him because of the film festival and because of the issue of pornography, which he had very little to do with. But again, he is the proxy. He is the target for all the vengeance directed at the Warren Court. And in a way, directed at American liberalism at the time. So he kind of pays the price for it. And all the things that broke with protocol, that and the filibuster are probably the, the biggest ones you can think of. And so it worked. Yes, it worked. What happened after that? What happened with Fortis and play out the end of the, the, end of the story? Right. So in, in October 1, the filibuster vote is held and, and there's nowhere near the two-thirds majority to overcome the filibuster. So ultimately... Fortas's nomination is withdrawn, and Earl Warren stays on as chief justice, and 
Fortas stays on as an associate justice. And people thought, you know, he'd still have a long career on the court, even though he's suffered this, you know, humiliating blow. But what happens is just a few months later, there was a reporter at a Life magazine who uncovers some uh, shady financial dealings that Fortas was involved with. It wasn't illegal, but it was... Questionable. Questionable, yes. He he had taken a position from a foundation where he would get paid $20,000 a year in perpetuity. And after he died, it would go on to his wife, those payments. And that's a lot of money. That was more than half his salary. And it was really just for a few hours of work a year. So it seemed shady. The The problem was the head of the foundation, Lewis Wolfson, he was one of the original corporate raiders, and he was one of the first people convicted of uh, white-collar crime. Another one of your specialties. Yes. <laughs> By Robert Morgenthau, of all people, who just you know, passed away. You know, you have this potentially unethical behavior, right? Because Wolfson is being investigated and being uh, indicted and, and prosecuted, and he's friends with a justice that he's paying much more than uh, what normally would, be, would get paid for this kind of job. And so this ended up in Life magazine in the spring of 1969. The Nixon White House at the same time knew about this and started investigating Fortas as well. And they start pressuring him. They start hinting that, oh, there's more to come, and it's go- this is going to be a big scandal. And Nixon sends the Attorney General John Mitchell to visit with Earl Warren and show him some of these underlying documents that showed the the payments that Fortas had received. And like I said, there was nothing illegal, but it seemed really dubious. And so the court itself felt embarrassed and felt that its reputation was at stake. And they kind of asked Fortas to to step down. And ultimately, the pressure of everything that was building, and there were there was talk of impeachment. You know that started to get going in the House. So he resigns in May of 1969, just a few months after, you know, this defeat in the, in the Senate just a few months earlier. So his career, which seems so promising, just less than a year earlier in June, everyone assumes that he's going to become Chief Justice. Less than a year after, he's not only not Chief Justice, he's now off the court. And his name took on such a negative reputation, his old law firm wouldn't take him back. In fact, they removed his name. It was Arnold Fortas and Porter. They removed his name from the from the law firm. And he continued to practice, but he never reached the lofty levels of being this political advisor and legal wise man in Washington that he had before joining the court. So it was a, it was a tragic ending to his career. And then what did Nixon do? He now has two appointments to the Supreme Court. Talk about what Nixon did and how those went down in the weeks, months, and years after. So Nixon kind of builds on what LBJ was already doing. So as I said, LBJ was the first president to really look at the justices from this ideological standpoint that we do today. Nixon was the first president to really look at how the selection of a justice would help his electoral prospects. And if you think about that, you think, well, presidents did that to some extent, but again, not to his extent, not the way we do now, where if you look at sort of what Donald Trump did in 2016, right? He had a list and he was basically telling his supporters, pick me and I'm going to replace the late Justice Scalia rather than letting uh, Hillary Clinton do it, right? It was a very overt promise. So Nixon, again, was the first person to kind of do that in the 68 election. And he wooed Southerners by making that promise. So he now has two openings. One is for the outgoing Earl Warren, who finally did retire at the end of the 1969 term, in the summer of 1969, and then for Abe Fortas, who had resigned. He picks Warren Berger to replace Earl Warren. He's confirmed quite easily. He's from Minnesota. He had been on the D.C. Circuit, seen as a non-controversial selection. But for Fortas's pick, 
He picks a Southern judge named Clement Hainsworth. And now the liberals in the Senate are out for revenge. They said, well, we, we saw what you did to Fortas. We're going to do that to your pick. Uh, and Hainsworth was a respected judge, but he was seen as maybe not friendly on civil rights cases. So again, they were using some of the same tactics used against Fortas to now torpedo Hainsworth. And the big thing that happened was this was the first time that interest groups, special interests, really came into play. So the NAACP and the AFL-CIO, which were huge players in Washington at the time, joined forces and uh, led by Senator Birch Bayh from Indiana, they torpedo Hainsworth. So now you have the opening still there. Nixon goes on and picks G. Harold Carswell, another Southern judge, for Fortas's opening. And he's doing this because that was part of his pledge to the South during his campaign, that I'm going to pick a jurist who's going to be more favorable or at least more sympathetic to the South's view on civil rights. The Senate liberals, and again, led by the NAACP and the AFL-CIO, go after Carswell. And he was seen far more dangerous on civil rights than Hainsworth was. And he had something else that they used against him, and that was he wasn't known as a good judge. He was a district court judge and, and recently had become an appellate judge, that his rulings were overturned on a far larger scale than most other judges. Those ABA ratings we talk about now. Yes, and he, and he got a very low rating. And the thing was, up to that point, outside of the ABA, the, the legal community hadn't really participated in the Supreme Court nomination process. But now you had these ad hoc groups start to chime in and say, you know, this guy's completely unqualified. The, the dean of Yale Law School testified during the confirmation hearings that he would be the worst qualified nominee to the court in the 20th century. And then there was an astonishing memo I found, and it was signed by more than 100 clerks to the Supreme Court justice. And that's the most prestigious job you can get out of law school. And they said, we feel Carswell is unqualified. Now, some of the names were renowned at the time, like Dean Acheson, who had been Secretary of State under Truman. And some of the names became very renowned later, such as Stephen Breyer. No one knew him at the time, but he signed it as well. So you have these clerks, you know, the brightest young legal minds, at least, disavowing Carswell. So nothing like that had ever happened before, where now you're getting these outside groups to really participate and have a huge impact in the confirmation process. So Carswell gets rejected as well. So now you have two rejections in a row, and finally Harry Blackman is uh, is nominated and appointed, and he too was seen as someone that was acceptable to liberals and to these special interest groups. So you had almost a year where there was no Ninth Justice. The Fortis seat was empty for a year. And again, it reminds you a lot of, you know, Justice Scalia died in February of 2016. Same thing happens where you have about a year where there's an opening because of uh, of the revolutionary things that took place. So, but Nixon didn't mind the defeat so much. He was embarrassed by it. He was upset that Republicans didn't support him in confirming, trying to confirm these two. But it played into his Southern strategy. It played into his use of nominations for his electoral prospects. And there are memos in the Nixon uh, White House that show that those two selections, even though they were ultimately defeated, played the biggest role in increasing his popularity in the South. So in the 68 election, he wins some border states, but George Wallace, the third party candidate, won the Deep South. By 72, it's a clean sweep of the South for Nixon. So Again, the way we look at nominees now where it's not just about ideology, it's about partisan politics, it's about presidential campaigns, right? That wasn't done up until Nixon really started to do that 
And if you go back all the way to FDR in 1936, it's months before he's going to try to pack the court. It's the 1936 presidential election, and he doesn't campaign against the court at all. He doesn't say, oh, elect me, and I'm going to uh, select justices that are going to support the New Deal. And even fellow Democrats urge him to, but he refused to do that. Nixon does that in the 68 election, and then as president, really builds upon that. And then you see, well, wait a minute. That's what modern presidents do now. Reagan certainly did that. And like I said, Donald Trump is, the, is maybe the biggest embodiment of using the nomination process and the, the pledge of campaigning and based on who you're going to nominate for his uh, electoral gains. And, and so Nixon kind of started that as a model. And now you're seeing it you know, move to the nth degree under, under Trump. One of the ironies of Blackman was uh, what, did, what opinion did he, did he go on to write? Roe v. Wade. <laughs> so he didn't get his Southern judge. He got another Minnesotan like Berger. Right. And uh, it turns out that uh, uh, you had a, another justice who probably disappointed their president. I have to say, after reading it, I, you completely convinced me that this is exactly what happened and how it happened. And even to the point where I had just forgotten that Jimmy Carter didn't have a Supreme Court nominee. One of the things that I found really interesting was in that 50 years, while seven of those have been what I'd call contentious, which I say double-digit opposition in right. the Senate, you also had six either defeated, as you mentioned, two of them, or withdrawn in cases like Harriet Myers or Ginsburg. Right. The first uh, – Douglas Ginsburg. D- right. Douglas Ginsburg. And, you know, you go back to American political history, and in the 100 years before that, I think you'd had more justices uh, get nominated, confirmed, and refused to serve than you had that kind of contention. And then – Finally, I guess the most depressing statistic that I found was in the 25 years since Stephen Breyer, who you've mentioned, his confirmation, we've had zero nominees who received only single-digit opposition. So I guess it begs the question, can we ever go back? Will it ever (laughs) go back? Or is this the new normal? I I would say in the near future, this is the new normal because the court is now just as politicized as as it's ever been. And when people look at the court, for instance— to change policy on abortion, no, no matter where you stand on that issue. If you say to yourself, if we get our five people, we're going to win, we're going to prevail on, on you know, whether we're pro-choice or pro-life, that's very dangerous for the court. That's going to politicize it no matter what we do, if we give it that kind of power. And if we allow it to decide a lot of issues that, let's say, are better suited for the electorate or the political process to decide, it's going to stay the same. Unfortunately, I thought the Garland nomination was an opportunity to kind of back away from this. If you look at Garland, he was left of center, but he wasn't as liberal as some of the other potential people Obama could have picked. And he was 63 years old, which by modern standards is a pretty old nominee. Usually now they're in their 40s or 50s because presidents want someone there who will serve for 20, 30 years. I I did the calculation. If uh, Brett Kavanaugh lives as long as Oliver Wendell Holmes, he has another 39 years on the court. Right. Right. So you had uh, presidents picking younger and younger justices so that they would serve a long time. So I thought Obama, by picking someone who's not as liberal, more of a center liberal justice, potential justice, and someone who's a little older, was kind of offering a compromise. Yes, I'm not going to pick someone who Republicans will will really dislike, but Garland maybe will be a compromise. I think it would have been great if that compromise had been accepted. It would have toned down what we have. But the fact that he didn't really get rejected, right? The McConnell came up with the whole lame duck argument. 
really em- embittered both sides even more. And then you have the attempted filibuster against Neil Gorsuch and, of course, the really testy, nasty exchanges between Brett Kavanaugh and the uh, Senate Democrats last fall. So it got worse. And I thought that was the opportunity. Was Garland really a compromise pick? Someone who both sides could could live with but not be ecstatic about? And the fact that that fell through, I don't see much hope in the near future because a lot of this is reflective of politics outside of the court. And politics outside of the court is now very rancorous and partisan. So I don't see the court being shielded from that in the near future. I don't see that in today's political environment. Maybe five, 10 years down the line, it's it's possible. So anybody who knows uh, anything about writing books can read your book and know that you started this before the Brett Kavanaugh nomination, probably a while before. Yes, long before, yes. So as you sat there last summer watching this play out, were you surprised by the rancor and by just the ugliness of that process, somebody who'd been immersed in this for as long as you had? I was to some extent because part of it was uh, these were televised hearings, whereas the Fordists were not. Whatever I saw, I had to read in a transcript. But when you see it on video, it, it was really, uh, it was surprising how ugly and how contentious and how mean-spirited it had gotten. And what was surprising was, in a way, Fortis kind of sat silently as people used him for target practice, whereas Kavanaugh was willing to speak out. So that was the biggest change, not so much the tone of the conversation. But how the was, nominee, right? Yes, it was, it was who was doing the talking, who was, doing a, who was launching a lot of these attacks was the nominee himself, which, which had him in the case with Fortis or the Nixon nominees who kind of, like I said, sat and took the, <laughs> took the punishment. So that, that did surprise me. And, and as I said, seeing it on video and hearing it with your ears rather than reading it on a sheet of paper, yes, that, that did surprise me. But it did also echo back to what happened some 50 years earlier. And it was exactly on the 50th anniversary, which made it so ironic that you had these two contentious nominations almost to the day, exactly 50 years apart. So that, that did echo a lot. I said, wow, look at the, look at the things that repeat themselves uh, you know, in history and even, even 50 years later. So it was both surprising, but also illuminating of the, the parallels between the two. Michael Bovellian, the book is called Battle for the Marble Palace, Abe Fortas, Earl Warren, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and the Forging of the Modern Supreme Court. It is a wonderful book. It is well-researched. It is a great read, and it's really, really important as we go into 2020 for people to pick this up. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 